stepped out onto the midway. Hi, welcome to 10 CDs for a Penny, the show where we talk about mild music mags and culture and stuff. I'm Jackson Maine. This episode, we're talking about Alternative Press, issue 201, April 2005, with Mars Volta on the cover. But we're not talking about Mars Volta. In fact, we're going to get to them later. I am going to do an episode on them. But for now, we're going to be talking about the band Slint. Slint is featured in this magazine as an oral history. One of my favorite bands. So I invited John Waller and Ali Kadir on to talk about them. So we talk about all things Slint. We talk about post-rock. We talk about hardcore, too. And there's really not much more to be said in this intro that isn't already going to be said in the body of this episode. So let's just get to it. April 2005, Alternative Press, with an article on Slint. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this episode, we're actually going to be talking about Alternative Press uh, 2005 issue, and there's an oral history of the uh, band Slint in this issue, which is what really intrigued me about it. So I wanted to invite on Ali Kadir, uh, who uh, was the person who actually probably showed me Slint in high school. So welcome, Ali. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And back with me uh, uh, for... Uh, Probably the twentieth time now again, but uh, John Waller, thanks for uh, joining us again. Hello, feels like it's been a while. It has been a while on the podcast for you, I'm sure. I didn't look at the articles until today, but I was like, yesterday, I was like, I'll put on, I'm going to put on Spiderland, just, just to get a refresher. And I like, I put on the first song, and I was like, I don't, this is in my brain. Like, I don't, I, like, I haven't listened to the record in, you know, a few years, but like, I knew every like hook and everything. So I go to the next song and I'm like, don't need to listen to this. It's like, it, like it's already on record. Like I've like, it's like one of the, like Spiderland is like a record. I have completely internalized in my head. So it was, it's exciting to like get to talk about it. Cause I haven't really given it much thought. Like I've never like tried to see any of the reunions. I've never, you know what I mean? Like I haven't bought the reissue or anything, but I'm like, but I put it on and I was like, Oh yeah. And actually that's, I listened to like, actually, funnily, I listened to um, uh, the EP, you know, like the EP that came out that was recorded after Tweez, but before Spiderland. Sure. It's like a two song. They like re-recorded uh, Rhoda and then they did this other song called Glenn. And uh, sometimes when I'm trying to write, I'll just put the song Glenn on on repeat for like hours and hours and hours and hours and just like crank things out. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. I was picking up these issues a lot of times because there'd be a, a pretty underground band that all of a sudden they would just do like an oral history of. And when they did this oral history of Slint, I was really excited because they're a very elusive band. They're a band that really never did interviews. I mean, kind of rightfully so when you think about it, they were a pretty underground band who was really like, like struggling to like get an interview with these guys. Uh, I think they were just, by the time they were really becoming known, they were gone. So there just wasn't a lot of information about them. I will say Ali, I think you were the first person to show me Spiderland in high school. I had heard, uh, I had heard good morning captain on the kids soundtrack. And it was one of those things where it was like, like these are these were hard to find things. I remember going and trying to find like folk implosion after this, and there wasn't. It was I pretty much found out that folk implosion was kind of just the kids soundtrack. Um, <laughs> and then uh, finding, uh, I think, finding out about Spiderland through you. I remember actually. I'm pretty sure I remember going to Zap Records with you and you buying it, and it was just like a lunchtime thing. You saying, "I'm gonna go and." pick up a record do you want to come and i'm i'm pretty sure it was you and that's when you bought the vinyl that's so funny that's really interesting because i so okay so here's my memory of it here's or here or of i think maybe you came with me to buy tweez oh but but because here's what i remember is i wrote so I feel like Spiderland is tied up with like two like deep Kingston memories. Memory one is it was at Zap Records that I bought Spiderland, but I bought Spiderland. The guy who was working at Zap Records, who wasn't Gary, who was kind of like 
he, you know, a little aloof. Sure. Like really aloof. Yeah. Um, but the, for a while, this is back when it was on South. This, I'm not going to get into like local details of the, of the layout of Kingston, Ontario in the nineties. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, I went to zap records and I think it was right around the time I was sort of getting a little bit deeper into like punk stuff. And I was like, I'm going to go buy like a exploited record or something. So I went to zap and the guy behind the counter was like, you just have to buy this record. You have to buy Spiderland. And I, it, the guy who did that was, um, he was the bassist of this band, the Van Allen belt. Oh yeah. I remember him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they, and they were awesome and they were kind of like, like a weird Kingstonian college rock answer to post rock in their own right. They were kind of like heavy and sort of intense. Like I, I mean, I haven't listened. I literally tried to find a track of theirs online. I couldn't, I found like a wig standard article about them, but they're <laughs> like, they were like heavy, like kind of like, um, I don't know, like in my memory, they sound like fucking shellac, but I know that they do not. They didn't sound like shellac. I know that they were, I mean, they went on tour with the hip a whole bunch. So like, I'm sure like they, like the, anyways, they're, I'm sure they're, they were great, but I loved them. I remember anyways, he was the one, he's like, you just have to buy the record. I'm like, well, what's it sound like? He's like, I'm not, we're not getting into this. You're just going to buy the record. (laughs) And I think that was like around 95 or something. And then, and then I, and then like, so so I think with you, we must have gone down there and either bought Tweez or or that EP or the 10-inch. So it's interesting because when I thought of this, I thought of Ali because he was the person who showed me Spiderland in high school. Uh, I always thought that John would probably be a big Slint fan. But when I asked him, he said, you know, he was quite familiar with them and on the record but it never really gotten too heavy into them, which kind of surprised me with John's love of, uh, of post rock. John, what was it like you, uh, it, it seems like you probably knew that the influence that, uh, of the, like the genre that you like, but, uh, and tried to go back to Spiderland, uh, to, to see where it came from. Yeah. I mean, for me, slint was just a band mentioned in, um, articles, about the bands I liked, I mean, my pathway pretty much went straight through Mogwai. And I'd, actually, the very first time I heard Mogwai was uh, on Much Music while working at Zeller's. <laughs> Someone requested them at the, like, 5 p.m. RSVP, and they played the summer video. And I almost immediately went out and bought 10 Rapid and then started reading articles about them. And, and for me, Slint was just a band that just sort of there was mention here and there and Spiderland, and I and I never I never heard them. I no one had ever mentioned them to me. Nobody ever said to me, "Hey, check out Slint or here's this record." Um, Ali, you mentioned that the record was kind of you were ordered to buy it by a guy at a record store, which sounds like a pretty classic story. I wonder how many copies of Spiderland were sold that way. Um, but for me, I never, I never got that. It was just here and there. And then I have a feeling, uh, I'm trying to figure out if I ever actually sought out spider spider land on my own, or if the first time I ever heard, um, Oh, is it goodbye? Captain. Good morning, captain. Good morning, captain. Uh, was on a mixtape uh, from a girl that uh, I was in love with. <laughs> so uh, she made me a mix CD, and uh, that was on it. And I, that, uh, that was probably the first time I actually heard it, and then eventually actually sought out the full album. And it was interesting for me because it was sort of like, as you kind of mentioned, it never became my favorite record. And it is a record I do like a lot. But I think sort of going back through that, like it was almost going backwards in time in a way where you listen to something that influenced your favorite bands, but you're hearing it second. And sometimes you hear those records and they sort of rise up and they kind of take over the favorite band, but sometimes they're just, you know, the, um, the predecessor, the, but they're the thing you heard after. And I think that's where Slint kind of got stuck with me. 
And also, I kind of knew that they were sort of a band that came and went very quickly. And, you know, sometimes I really enjoy not knowing anything about a band. And I think for Slint, it was like I didn't want to seek out anything else. Like, here was this borderline perfect record for what it was. And I knew that they had some association with, like, they'd gone on to do other things. I knew David uh, Pajo had, had been in other bands. Um, and I thought maybe some of the other guys had as well. But it was almost like, let's just have this record. And let's not, like, I didn't even, I listened to Tweez for the first time today. Um, it's so funny you say that. I, I feel like my experience of Mogwai was the exact opposite, which was kind of like chasing a slint dragon, where I was like, I need... I need more something more like this, and I feel like someone had recommended Mogwai to me as like a well. If you like, if you love Slint, you'll probably like Mogwai. No, it makes perfect sense. And when you know, I I think, and then in my case, yeah, it was I'd heard Spiderland before, and I then I you know pretty much my introduction to Mogwai was through John. Uh, I hadn't really listened to them. I was aware of them for a long time, but really hadn't. And I've still never like really, really dove in. But John has made a lot of like playlists for me and things like that to like get into. And I can I can really hear it. I can hear a lot of the influence. I don't think they're the exact same band, obviously, but I can hear. I don't even know if Mogwai was like directly influenced. If it was like if they were like they heard Spiderland and said we have to do this because I think there's a lot of similarities, but not exactly the same sound. I mean, uh, if you want another Mogwai playlist, uh, a coworker just asked for one. I just made one yesterday. (laughs) So, um, but I mentioned that because I actually found myself listening to a lot of early Mogwai yesterday. And I was reminded that there's a handful of tracks in those first EPs, that first album that if they tried to tell me, that they that spider spiderland wasn't one of their favorite records at the time i would not believe them <laughs> i mean it comes directly out of it and they're immediately doing something different or they're they're immediately adding their own things to it but there's a lot of sort of sections and songs where it's too it's too uh similar to just be a coincidence i think and those guys were also pretty young not not as young as the slint guys but like Mogwai got started when they were sort of late teens, early twenties. And, you know, so that's, that's the time when you're kind of starting out and just, you've just got your favorite records as a place to start. I still contend that Mogwai was the loudest show I ever saw in my entire life. The first time I went to go see them, um, right before I left for the show, um, a friend's friend who was older than us, he like he told me he was he was like, oh, get ready for the loudest show you've ever heard. However, I have since then seen My Bloody Valentine. And that's the only show I've ever been to where they were handing out earplugs as you walked in. Oh, me wow. too. The exact same thing. I always say that. It's the only show ever where there was a security guard just giving out earplugs. When someone told me that My Bloody Valentine was the loudest show they'd ever heard, I didn't believe them. I was like, I don't really get that out of this record. And I wouldn't get that out of Mogwai's records either. I wouldn't think that they would be intensely loud, but I've, again, heard that over and over. I um, think there's definitely sections on the first uh, first couple of albums where, I don't know, I don't think you should be surprised when you hear it live and you're like, oh yeah, they try to kill your ears with that. Because the one song, one song I was going to mention that to me is slint taken in a different direction is Like Herod which is basically goes from a very slinty kind of quiet part and then drops into a super loud thing, louder than anything Slint ever did, which is one of the things I did kind of find interesting about this article. For me, this article was filling in basically the entire backstory that I didn't know. But one of the things that gets mentioned is kind of the influence on sort of quiet, loud kind of indie bands. But when I listen to Slint, they do the quiet loud, but the records never have the dynamics. Like, it's all kind of even. I don't mean that as a criticism. I just mean that in um, the ways that they're kind of unique. And some of the bands that came after them, like Mogwai, are kind of different. Because Mogwai gets heavier than uh, Spiderland ever does. 
what did you guys think about it? Was there was there anything that you took out of this oral history that surprised you, or was there anything you found particularly interesting? Yeah, man, PJ Harvey writing to Slint in 1991, <laughs> being like, "Can I be the singer? Like, can I be your singer?" That fucking rules. That was awesome. Like, I did not see that coming at all. I still, have, I yeah. And it, could you imagine getting that letter? After you've decided to like not be a band anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Being like, Oh, well, Well, one thing that the article kind of illustrates is how, how they just sort of knew people like they, um, one of the, I I think they said that one of the predecessor bands had opened for big black. Mm -hmm. So they had met Albini before. So that's probably how they, they got him to do the first record. Yeah. And, and like, it's funny cause I looked on a map, like we're, we're up in Canada and I had to look at a map to kind of see, you know, uh, Louisville where they were from like Louisville to Chicago and kind of distances. And then thinking about, you know, that time of being a band where you didn't have the internet, you couldn't just record something and put it on the internet. So you had to get in your car and drive somewhere. And I think they, I think like Louis, Louisville to Chicago and meeting a whole bunch of bands along the way, you know, that was probably a much more common thing for teenagers uh, then than it was even for us. I guess I was just like, most impressed when I, when I reread this article, obviously I, you know, probably haven't read this since, since 2005 and just thinking about you know, they made this, the first band was called Squirrel Bait. Like, obviously these guys were in a lot of different bands. Like they mentioned probably 10 bands in this article that they were all in, like just local bands that, you know, never recorded, or they just mentioned names. Squirrel Bait seems to be the biggest one. And that seems to be the most well-known one in the like kind of indie punk community at the time. I mean, I never knew them obviously until like this article. And when you listen to them, I just want to say as well, like you can really hear that early emo sound of like, you know, like a rights of spring kind of influence and definitely like a, a, a Husker do influence. But what I thought was just so amazing too, like this punk community of the eighties, it was very small. Like we, we just know about it now. Like in the present, you just think it was something really big and well-known because it's just been 30, 40 years now of like seeing Black Flag t-shirts and Husker Du t-shirts. And these bands have just become legends. At the time, they were just punk bands and they were not on the radio. They were on college radio. They weren't on MTV. Like Black Flag were just constantly broke. These guys never made any money. They were just this touring punk band. And it's amazing now that these guys as teenagers somehow got to open for Big Black, Husker Du, play with these legendary bands, then subsequently meet Steve Albini, who records their first record when they're teenagers. I mean, again, Steve Albini was just, again, kind of like a indie darling at the time, but, you know, like wasn't a big deal. And he was just starting to record and do engineering. It's just a, an amazing thing that these guys actually get to look back on this time and realize that they got all these amazing opportunities. It doesn't necessarily surprise me that if you give teenagers enough records and nothing else to do, not that I'm saying they had nothing else to do, but um, that you start a band, you commit yourself to it. I mean, I was only in a band for like two or three years when I was a teenager, and we did not put as much work into it as we could have. Um, Because you mentioned being surprised of like, you know, where did they get these ideas and, you know, how could teenagers do this? And I'll admit when I listen to Tweez, like it's fine. It's obviously not the classic that Spiderland is, but I did kind of listen to it and think, yeah, I could see teenagers doing this. Um, teenagers with enough musical knowledge and enough sort of creativity. Um, Cause even in like, even in the, I don't want to give myself uh teenage me credit that he doesn't deserve but like even in the two to three years that i was in a band in high school like we near the end of it we were starting to kind of move beyond our original sort of influences and trying to do more interesting stuff um so i could imagine um a teenage band putting 
twice as much energy as we did into it. Um, Cause I think, I don't know if it's in the article or not where it mentions they started listening to hardcore early. They start doing hardcore. They start hardcore bands and then they decide like, I don't know if it was in the article. There's a quote about one of them, like being bored of hardcore by 11 or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, it's just, I think when I mentioned luck before, I just mean the luck of being exposed to that much, that type of music that early. Um, so that by the time, uh, by the time you're 15, 16, you've got a band, but you've been listening to this music for three, four years. And, you're ready to kind of move beyond it. Well, I was just thinking about Squirrel Bait. Squirrel Bait was awesome. They were really great, too. Did you know them at the time, Ali? Like, when you had discovered Slint, did you somehow discover Squirrel Bait, or was that later? That was later. That was a lot later. I think I found, you know, I think it was Skag, Heaven. Like, there's like there's like a squirrel bait LP that you get that's like an EP and and uh, and and they're like one full length recording. I think that's like a it's together and mm-hmm. I think I got that in college at some point. But I also think like I also think there's something kind of like really interesting. I think like Louisville, Louisville was like a place filled with all sorts of like inter- like interesting teenage ennui that like created a whole bunch of really cool bands came out of you know like. Not just like the, the the sort of bands that came directly after Slint, like you know, like the Four Carnation and all those bands, um, and the. But I was also thinking about um, there were bands. One band I really loved that was from that era was was um, Rodan. I don't know if you guys ever heard Rodan. I don't know. They were they were kind of like slightly faster, slightly punkier, and they actually had the, the like, they had Tara Jane O'Neill on vocals, and it kind of, she brought this, like, really interesting, like, harmonic element into this other thing that was really dissonant, and um, I feel like maybe there was also a little bit of, like, there was just, like, beautiful scene magic in the air there at that moment, the way, I don't know, I feel like, like, up until, up until COVID, Toronto seemed to have a bit of that beautiful, yeah. like, that, like, little that scene fairy dust in terms of like just really cool punk stuff happening here and uh yeah i really hope like i really hope people go like oh yeah but whatever was happening in toronto in 2018 and 26 you know 2015 to 2018 was really special or you know well that's a really good point and something i wasn't even really thinking about was that you know what was the scene that these kids were in and obviously it was special uh, I don't really know that much about Louisville in the eighties, but was it another kind of Athens, Georgia, Minneapolis, Washington, DC? Like it just like had this like cool scene that all of a sudden, like that group of people is all like feeding off of each other and just creating great things. So yeah, it's a really good point to bring up that it's, it's not about just like these kids who were just like these four weirdos who were, making punk music or something like that, that there was probably like a great, great scene and influence around them really like pushing them forward and making them feel like, yeah, we can, we can be this and we can, you know, you always hear that sort of thing, especially with punk music, the, the kids who are, you know, listening to like Jimi Hendrix and thinking that, well, I can't be a band because I'm not him. And then all of a sudden you hear that story a thousand times where some kid hears a hardcore band and we're like, Oh, Oh, we can do this? Oh, okay, okay. Now I get it. Like now I can just grab a guitar and like we should just bash some stuff out and be loud. One nice. of the interesting questions that you raised uh like in the lead up to this, Jackson, was about bands leaving starting hardcore bands and then leaving hardcore behind. Mm-hmm. There's a long history of it. And I think I mean my guess would be that hardcore is a very exciting uh music to get into to um it's really enticing to to start a hardcore band um and i don't want to insult hardcore but it is sort of i think once you i feel like once you start experimenting within hardcore it's sort of like a gateway drug to just leaving it behind like it's hardcore is kind of a thing and there's variations of it, but I guess if you do it for a few years, you either just keep doing it the same way or you move on to doing something else. 
Um, and whether it's like Dino Jr. or I mean, I don't know if like the replacements qualified as hardcore, but they were started out as kind of like a like a punk band. I feel like for for hardcore, you need like high to- turnover. You need like you need like yeah. by high t- turnover, you need like the bands need to break up. Like they need to record like three EPs, break up. The members need to form another band. Like you just need it. It's like circulation of capital. You need like. You, you just kind of need you need to keep the money moving around, you know, into, you know, you can't just have it sitting in the bank like that. You know, I mean, what's the longest like what's a hardcore band from that time, from the 80s that lasted like 10 or 15, 20 years? <laughs> like Cro-Mags or something, but like hmm? it's it's these bands, you know, like Cro-Mags or something like that. But by the end of it, there's not one original member, like exactly yeah. what Ali was just talking about. Basically, it's like you break up, like people leave, like there's these bands like that just genres, keep going but other genres you can come up with bands who it's almost like the same three or four or even five people for 20 or 30 years and how many hardcore bands are like that i think it's it's just it's an easy it's a obviously fantastic genre than the music uh industry like where well not industry that's a bad term but the music just seen nationwide um wouldn't be the same without it but it i think it just churns through people i think it just it's an easy thing to burn out on because it requires so much energy and it uh, yeah I, my guess would be as soon as you start experimenting you kind of waver and and end up somewhere else but actually funny you'd mentioned dinosaur jr and it made me think of this one thing about slint there was this amazing so when so like famously steve albini didn't record spiderland right it was like they, they wanted to go with someone else and anyways, but, um, after it came out, Steve Albini wrote this, this review of it. And I can't remember what magazine it was for. It's from melody maker. So this is the opening paragraph. And ever since I love this opening paragraph and it's, it's, a, it, it, it relates, I swear. Uh, since about 1980, America has been host to an ever increasing parasitic infestation of rock bands of ever dwindling originality. It seems there is no one left on the continent with an aspiration to play guitar that hasn't formed a band and released a record. And that record sounds a little bit like Dinosaur Jr. I thought that was such a such a mean <laughs> way to start it off. And then, and then he goes off to like, you know, heap praise upon Spiderland as being like the the record that's like kind of broken this mold so profoundly. Anyways. And what's the very last line of that, Ali? Because I feel like I read just a quote. I feel like the last line is something like, it, you're not going to know this now, but you're going to know these guys in 10 years. So just be an early adopter now. Take my word for it. <laughs> Is there something like that at the end? Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Until then, uh, play this record and kick yourself like you never got to see them live. In 10 years, you'll lie like the cocksucker you are and say you did anyways. <laughs> 10 fucking stars. <laughs> It's 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 funny given like I don't know if you guys saw the the Twitter thread he did recently about his sort of like previous about like his affect in this era. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was a spectacular thread that was one of my favorite. Like he didn't say the word cancel, but he was like, so I hear people are trying to dig up what I used to write as if it hasn't been published all over the place, and I recognize that I. You know, I definitely had a part in creating edgelord culture. And then my I think my favorite one was I think it might have been the last tweet in the thread where he goes like, I have had to talk to these guys in person and I pity anyone who has had to deal with them who isn't me. Hmm. <laughs> I feel like I just need to do an entire pod on Steve Albini. But like, why should I actually just go and read all his articles and all his all his essays on why he hates the that's going to be like industry. part one and part two at the very least. Like <laughs> it's like, why man. would, why, why would we want to talk about him when you could just go and read all of the great things he's written about hating the music industry? I will say, uh, listening to Tweez for the first time after reading the article and they talk about, you know, the first bassist who was on Tweez who, um, then left the band and he didn't like, uh, how Albini made Tweez sound, and then he says in the article that when he heard Spiderland, he was like, "This is what Tweez should have sounded like." I was like, "Yeah, I kind of agree with you that Tweez, 
I listened to it and I was like, man, eh, this yeah, it doesn't sound great. I think on all like it sounds kind of like an not an amateurish in production, but all the it, it the just sound sounds- of the guitar and all the chorus on the guitar. I'm like, yeah, this is teenagers playing guitar. And not knowing like how to make a good guitar record. sound. Like yeah, it sounds pretty much. It sounds like Atomizer, which I, like don't get me wrong, I think Atomizer is just a, just the bee's knees, you know. But like applied to this band, maybe not so much, you know. One of the things I actually find really interesting about, um, or I've always found interesting about Spiderland, is the production and instrumentation of it. Because in my head, without knowing sort of who they were or where they came from. I always had this association with like, like a lot of the sort of '90s Midwest kind of indie hardcore that I'd heard. Where like uh, when I was trying to listen to it again this week and thinking about its influence, the fact that so much of it is like there isn't much distortion on the record. Like a lot of the guitars are very bare and there are almost no effects i don't think other than when distortion does come up and there's like a simplicity a simplicity of a kind of a bare bones quality to it that you know as i said the article talks about the kind of loud quiet loud quiet influence but i'm more interested in how influential was it in terms of how quiet it is at times whereas you know so many bands were like let's be as loud as we possibly can mogwai kind of does both where i felt mogwai does both where they do the quiet bit and then they'll be like let's be really loud um yeah i mean i was also thinking when we were talking about teenage punk bands that then sort of um basically give up on punk really early like i thought of when i was 15, 16, got introduced to Cap and Jazz, who had recorded one record and then were gone. And people were telling me about them after I had listened to Joan of Arc. And, you know, for me, that was one of the sort of first bands that I knew of that kind of went from doing a punk thing. And then by the time they were like 20, they'd sort of given up punk and were doing these clean guitar kind of experimental thing. Were you ever a fan of the four carnation at all? I've never actually, you know, I've never listened to them. I hadn't heard of them. So that's how little I know about. So I think they make get mentioned in the article because they, I think no, was, they do. Yeah. yeah. Cause they were like post slint. Like I think a bunch of slint members have like drifted in and out. I think it's that guy, Brian's like, yeah, McMahon, main, I think. Yeah. McMahon. Um, but they are like all the quiet of Slint with none of the loud, and it and it. But it also doesn't have that like stoner, like it doesn't not stoner, but it doesn't have a it doesn't vibe. You know what I mean? It's good. It's right. sad. It's it's not it's not for me really, but it's good. Um, but it doesn't have that thing where you kind of get locked into this like kind of like head bob vibe that I think like when when oftentimes when Slint kind of gets quiet, they get into a bit of there's a nice groove, you know, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the stoner thing because my first theory about uh, Spiderland was hardcore kids who got really, really stoned. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because they were like total teenage shitheads. Like, did you <laughs> see? Um, did you? Did either of you ever see the Slint documentary a few years ago? Yeah, I did. Yeah. No, and I didn't like, see it. There's like a tape that they talk about, like a cassette that exists in the world that they had recorded of just them committing like amazing like feats of farting and that like they tried to like have every copy of this cassette destroyed from back in like squirrel debate days and then there's like a story about a guy like taking a shit and so i i'm i'm really hoping i could swear on this like yes you can um you know taking a crap on in, in someone's coke can and not and then putting a straw back in like there's like like they were, they were like absolute, just like uh, uh, they, I'm sorry, they were just straight up teenage shitheads. Like the way that <laughs> that that documentary kind of painted them. So I wouldn't be surprised if you know, yeah. 
I think it doesn't necessarily surprise me because I think you kind of almost have to be sometimes the teenage shitheads. And I, I don't think I was a teenage shithead, but the teenage shitheads are sometimes the most confident ones. And I think you had to be a bit of a shithead to be confident enough to do what they did. And these guys were practicing, you know, when you, uh, Spiderland in this article, they said it was recorded in four days. Which makes sense to me. It's it's not that many songs. And these guys were practicing for eight hours a day. That's all they did for a whole summer. Like in university, yeah. it seemed like none of them had jobs. <laughs> they were just in a yeah. basement all week practicing six songs eight hours a day. <laughs> I mean, I wish I, that's that, how I had, that's how I'd spent my teenage years. Yeah, absolutely. That was a cool detail from the article that they had no songs they had no songs that just you haven't heard. Like there's one song that they wrote that has never seen the light of day. But like it's not like there was like by the time they broke up, there was a big scrap of uh, there was like a scrap heap of music. It's just like that's all they did was just like take they had they had a few songs and they refined them and worked on them and worked on them and worked on them and worked on them. You know, that's, that's an, an interesting process, I feel like. Absolutely. And that's a real rarity for any band. You know, you see, I mean, pretty much every band you can think of, there's like how many B-sides, how many just like throwaway songs, but they may be on a tape somewhere. And you're always like waiting to hear like that one lost song. Yeah, these guys didn't have any of that. I just feel like they're just such a unique band in so many ways that, you know, that they came up with this so young. They, again, only had like the songs that you've ever heard. That's it. And then they were just gone. And I just want to, you know, there there is a lot of bands that broke up that you never got to see, that you wish you got to see, and kind of got a bigger career and a bigger following after they were already gone. There's obviously a lot of, there's a million bands out there that have done this, and then, you know, there's a well, just like a, a small scene of people who really wanted to hear them. I feel like Slint is kind of on the bigger end of that, though. They were the one band that seemed like they broke up. They were really influential. Like everybody who, like again, ended up hearing them wanted to kind of, you know, do the extension of what they, you know, I'm talking about like Mogwai or something like that. It's like let's pick up where they left off, sort of thing. There was very few people who knew of this band. Did they say maybe they sold like five thousand copies of Spiderland when it came out on Touch and Go? It really took a while for them to build this audience but once it did like everybody wanted to for them to reunite and you know there's not a lot of like small indie bands that like people were like really really championing like will you come back and it mm. does say like i mean they i mean the reason they pretty much put out this oral history in 2005 was because they did reunite and all tomorrow's parties in england got them to reunite and then curate the entire festival and they said within they sold out the entire thing before they even announced any other bands that they were just showing up. Um, which, yeah, I just yeah. feel like as a small band that that's, that, that is very unique. And the article, Oh, I forget where it is. I can't find the exact quote, but it does strongly suggest that they were offered an amount of money. They couldn't turn down mm -hmm. to do it. Like it's, it, it doesn't say that they were doing reuniting just for the money, but there's a wording. I can't find the quote, but there's like a wording about it that suggests that they were like, okay, we'll do it for that. We've talked a lot about kind of like hardcore, you know, influencing into here. And I'm just trying to think if I want to say anything else about that. Just, just, I feel like the excitement of hardcore kind of just bleeds in. Like, I mean, it's just like a real gateway as we are talking about like people getting into that and there's so much energy. Um, But I was, I wasn't going to piggyback off one thing. One of you said where, uh, you know, you get that energy, you get that, you know, you're in that hardcore band and then all of a sudden you kind of decide that you, yeah, you want to like go past that because hardcore can get monotonous uh, and depending on what you're doing and then you want to, you know, take it to another direction and like more clear melody and songwriting and effects and experimentation and things like that. I just feel that that that's what happens a lot. Either you have a band, like a really extreme punk band, and then you stop and then you make something completely different. Or as a band, you just continue as that band, but then you 
I've just seen it so many times where like the first two records are like really extreme. And then that third record, it kind of slows down. Everybody goes like, well, what are you doing? Like, you know, all of a sudden, like you, you probably should have just made a new band, but it, uh, at that, it, you, you didn't want to like ditch your brand. And so all of a sudden your fans kind of get pissed off at you, but really it's just like, well, we got bored of playing that. We want to do something else. <laughs> It's like the black flag. It's like the black flag quandary. Exactly. Although yeah. like, you know, those, I feel like those later black flag LPs, like when it gets into the place where it's just like, you know, Greg Ginn wanking and, and, and uh, like Henry Rollins doing poetry, spoken word. It's a little like, uh, it's not a record. Those are those records I can't put on. You know what I mean? I can't be like, yeah, this is, we're going to listen to family, man. This is great. Like, like, yeah, my if, daughter my daughter really loves Family Man. She's really into Family Man. But like slip it in, like which I wouldn't play for my daughter either, actually. But like you know <laughs> what I mean? But like slip it in is still a great record. You know, anyways, yeah. If Ian Mackay did a minor threat tour right now, think okay. I was gonna say, how excited would you be? But also think about what if he had been doing minor threat for the past forty years? Mm-hmm. Would you be like, oh, really? Come on, buddy. Come on. It would have just become Fugazi anyways. That's what it would be. Like, I could just see well, Ian Mackay's career. I mean, career. like, if he had stuck with that yeah. style, like, if he hadn't kind of made the switch to Fugazi and then to the Evens or whatever else, like, if he was still out there being, like, hardcore dad or something, hardcore DIY dad, like... You know, maybe we'd all still be like, oh, super cool. Or maybe we'd be like, you're still doing this, eh? Yeah. I kind of find there is an article on here in this issue that I sent to you guys as well. If we want to like just talk about it quickly, like there there was a big feature about hardcore music in 2005. And even bands at the time that they were featuring bands like Bane, I felt they were already kind of like left over from the 90s. And I even saw that these guys probably like around 2010, like someone brought me to a show like Bane's playing. And I think I just got to go for free. So I went and I was like, yeah, you guys are just, this is, this is what you've done. Like you, you, you haven't progressed any further. And I find that like, yeah, I, I just never see like I, the only band I can really think about that I feel like is like progressed well is fucked up. Like they went from like, this just super like, standard of hardcore like 80s hardcore into like what they became but i feel like you just can't stick with hardcore for very long there is something that you just kind of like put out into the world and then you do something else i don't think you can do it for 40 years or you just end up being hardcore dad yeah that article i I, so i took a little peek at that article and i gotta i i will i'm gonna just say i respectfully disagree but anyways i'll get to that um um, but like I, that article was interesting cause, cause it's like all these bands from 2005 that I felt like I was like too punk to, to like, I was, or like too, like, I don't know. They just like, it was like more youth crewy, more macho y. Like I thought that there was some sort of like war between like the kind of like genre of hardcore that I liked and this other stuff. But it's so funny now at this point. Now, like now that I'm 40, like I really like I'm starting to like really enjoy it. Like I put on a Bane record recently and I was like, this rules. Like, (laughs) I think I was better than this when I was like 21. Like this this is so or or like or like, have you heard that? Have you heard the Turnstile record yet? It's like it's like really youth crew influenced. Like it's sort of like leeway, like New York. Like it's it's it is that thing that you I think you guys are talking about, about the sort of like people were into this genre and then kind of pushing out a little bit and and i don't know it's just like a really interesting pop record and it has like and but it's it has like the kind of like backflip kind of vibe to it when you listen to it like i really it's it's honestly just give yourself give yourself the chance to listen to that to that turnstile record i think it's just like an it's awesome but anyways yeah, like I was looking at this article and there's all these bands that I, I thought like I had to like ethically stand against over some kind of like like over like machismo or something that now I'm like I'm like I was going through this article and I was like kind of like I was like, you know, what I'm going to listen. You know, I, I was too cool for this this throwdown record. I'm I'm putting that on tonight. You know what I mean? Like I and and so, yeah, I'm excited to kind of go deeper into that stuff again. But but yeah, some of that stuff I really I still I still 
I still think there's like a there's like an urgency and there's 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 some just like there's something really great about that stuff too. Was it your machismo or their machismo? Their machismo. That, uh, I was into. Right. I was, you know, like I, I, I still, you know, like I, I just, I thought that there was something that I was not. There, I thought that there was some, I that some that there was some ethical boundary that I was caught crossing or something, because to listen to the like, kind of like, heavier like muscle building. And maybe this is just like my midlife crisis, and now I want to get into like muscle building music and stuff, <laughs> and like I'm going to start lifting or something. But like, um, Bane, like rules. I always, I always liked these bands, kind of like on a periphery. I was always just intrigued by them. I wasn't listening to them, but I had a lot of friends who were, and I liked going to the shows. Like I liked being kind of like on the wall. I I definitely got hurt at a couple of these shows. Like it was kind of unavoidable going to like a converge show or something like that and getting an elbow in the head. Uh, so I always just like the energy of it. It just seemed fun to watch like a live, this, this live scene, but I wasn't really into it. And I just, I guess I can tie it into where I think I just always liked what came after these bands every time. So when we talk about Slint, like whether they were necessarily like super into hardcore or had hardcore bands, they like what they did that came after that, that energy and that idea of doing something like very different often results in something, something great as well. So people who I feel like I hear, I've heard the same sort of like hardcore band a lot of times, but then that those ideas and that energy afterwards all of a sudden becomes something brand new which i feel is just incredibly valuable all the time because when i heard fucked up for the first time i was kind of like yeah these guys are just like doing they just like chromags a lot that i can see what they're doing like this is this is fun but then all of a sudden they they started like progressing in a completely different way and all of a sudden i just thought this is really special and especially that the, it was coming out of toronto i was really proud like in that in that time frame around like 2006 2007 i was like wow this is really incredible stuff i mean okay. one thing that i was just thinking of was okay so i've said a couple of things about hardcore that may sound like i'm kind of hard on it I, when i was talking about hardcore bros or when i talked about like bands not lasting for a while but the flip side of look of of that is looking at this article and you know seeing this almost what 20 30 maybe even 40 year continuum where like you know i i kind of said earlier about oh you know there's no like 30 uh, hardcore bands that have been around for 30 years but the positive flip side of that is that it sort of you know, I, I think Ali earlier you kind of I don't know whether you said the word churn or something, but or the not churn but um, uh, turnover. But the flip side of turnover is that there's always new bands being, you know, band A influences band B, and then band A burns out, and then band B goes really hard for a few years, influences band C, and then band B burns out or does moves on to something else. And it just kind of keeps going and keeps going. And I mean, I suppose that happens in a number of genres, but I think hardcore really is like there's this continuous, or at least there was this continuous sort of DIY thing that just sort of kept going and kept going from band to band to band to band, from scene to scene to scene to scene. And, you know, it may have sounded judgy that, I looked at this article and kind of saw things that I was like, Oh, that looks like a show I went to, you know, or this photo looks like a show I was at, you know, six years before this, but in a completely different part of the continent in a completely different part of the country. And there is something kind of beautiful in the fact that there was this sort of consistent thing. Like you could almost, you could imagine sort of being at, a Fugazi, uh, a minor threat show and then at a Fugazi show and then at like a suburban Ontario, um, you know, scene show and then going to one of these kind of small like American shows or something and not feeling that different. And they all, you know, feeling this sort of consistency. So there's that kind of flip side. There's the bands that, you know, the slints and the dinosaur juniors that kind of 
offshoot out of it and then the sort of almost main river of north american hardcore the river analogy was really good like that like river that's like always flowing and things are just like constantly like branching off of it so you have that sound that's always kind of a constant and you need that you know to kind of just like progress all these new acts that are coming on they discover that sound they want to do that for a little while and then they branch off well, by the time they branch off, they've influenced like one or two bands to replace them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's one more thing, Ali. This is going to be really funny too because at the end of every episode, I read off the billboard charts, the top 10 billboard charts of the time uh, the magazine was out. In this case, I'm just going to do it in 1991 when Slint came out because well, it really, really didn't talk anything about 2005. Um Usually this is a little more funny, like we're talking about maybe some more popular bands. This is probably the most niche underground band we've really ever talked about on this on this pod. So reading this out will be pretty funny. Usually I try to get you guys to guess, but I won't even do that. I think we can just, you can comment on whatever I say pretty much. Uh, like I so usually, wait, what's the, remind me of the month we're in, you're, you're going to do 1991 and what is the month? March. Oh God. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm already out. Um, this was actually, I'll just say this quickly. This was actually pretty funny. I, uh, I kind of started this because at the back of Rolling Stones, they just will have the billboard charts. Uh, so whenever we did one of those, it would be there, but with every other magazine, they don't print that. So I have to go online and you just go to billboard.com and you can go to any month and the exact date. And it will give you like a breakdown of like the top 200. Uh, this week when I went to do this, all of a sudden billboard made you subscribe. They have stopped their, on their, on their site. You now have to just subscribe to see their charts. And I'm thinking it's guys, it's been 70 years. Like now you're making people subscribe online to do this. Like, are you really hurting for money? It's like a hundred bucks a year to do this now. Could you imagine the person who, who, who pays for it? Also, who's like. I just got, I got to know, I got to find out. I got to do this. This is not on Wikipedia or something. You'd be surprised. This was really hard. I really looked. I was like going through everything. I thought Wikipedia would probably just have like the breakdown of every month or there'd be some other site. It was incredibly difficult to find this. And I ended up, I mean, massively DIYing this. If you went on fast enough before it did the big pop-up saying you have to subscribe, it would show you for about three seconds and I was able to take a couple screenshots. That's how I did this. <laughs> Using like site time latency against it. You know, you should have, you should have built a better site. You should have built a site that didn't, didn't have that little like flash. You should have, should have coded it better, pal. Come on. I, I don't know where I'm going to go with this now. If I ever have to do this again, this is actually a massive pain in the ass, but maybe I'll just be able to continue doing this. We're in this day and age where you can pretty much get anything for free if you really try. So having said that, here's the top 10 records after talking about Slint and Hardcore. <laughs> here's the top 10 records in 1991 in March 1991. So Slint Spiderland came out uh, March 27th, 1991. So I did that week. Number 10 is a uh, a really well-known female artist, uh, actress, female artist. She's about 75 years old now. I'm just going to I'm just going to go out there and say it's Bette Midler. Bed Mittler, oh. Some People's Lives at number 10. I was almost nice. going to guess Streisand. Oh, nice. okay. You would have been close. This was, uh, it, you, you, you might wonder why Bette Midler's on the charts. It's the song From a Distance. Which that, is, wait, wait, that's not, so that's, so this is pre-beaches or post-beaches? Oh, I, really close to that, Ellie. I mean, was that song in Beaches? No, that was for Beaches. Was did you ever know? You oh, right, right, right. Yeah. But like, I feel like I put those. The beaches two, was '88, like, so okay. Oh, wow. So that was actually this was kind of way after. So probably like probably her uh, almost. I wonder if it's her follow up to having that huge hit. 
Because from okay, so like that the beaches song that I mean that's got it's big, it's sad, it's got 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 drama. I like that one. I feel like from a distance feels like I think it's because I think I had to learn it in in like choir, you know, that like I feel like it feels like pablum to me more than than the beaches track. So yeah, no, absolutely, and the fact that this is. You know, let's just say it, it's it's a religious song. <laughs> then, then <laughs> yeah, I, oh, totally. Oh, yeah, God is watching us. Yeah, yeah. you're right. That's I what, will say I recently watched a show with her in it, and she was delightful. Was that the uh, the candidate show, John? Yes. Okay. It's funny that every time I think of Bette Midler, I just think of her in the Krusty Comeback special in The Simpsons <laughs> when she's cleaning oh, yeah, up the highway. <laughs> yeah. And then she kills the guy with the with the crushed up coke yeah. can. It's time to take out the trash. Yeah, I say that pretty much every time I take out the trash. <laughs> okay, number nine, guys. I think you'll get this one. This is 1991. Think of 1991 gigantic rap stars. So 1991. This is kind of like when hip hop is becoming really huge like it had its huge hits in the 80s but this is like into the 90s this is the 90s like first megastar vanilla ice no first megastar in my opinion maybe someone will say something else i feel like run dmc is too pivoted towards the 80s for this think of this like big big pop singles i'm drawing a blank it's MC Hammer. Please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Oh. Well, see, that's what I was waiting for, because it was like, I was going to say Vanilla Ice or MC Hammer. So I was going to ask, okay, if it's not Vanilla Ice, is it the other one? <laughs> I didn't want to say it's the other one, because there's definitely <laughs> Vanilla Ices. <laughs> I, I don't want to compare Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer really in any way if I don't have to. <laughs> No, but they were the two. Like I know. They, at the same time, they were kind of the, the pop rap megastars. Number eight is a uh, a Latin artist, Latin female artist. Um, I don't know how much more I can say without really giving not, this away. Not Selena. Not Selena. No, a little early for Selena, but you're 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 in the same uh, same genre. Gloria Stefan, but that seems you are correct, John. It is it's Gloria Stefan into the light is the record. Number seven, uh, number seven is probably the biggest female R and B singer of the of the eighties and nineties. Solo artist had just come off of a or was pardon me, Madonna. No. uh, a black female artist. I she's about to make a very big movie with a very big soundtrack. Oh, Whitney Houston. Yes, <laughs> Whitney Houston is at number seven. Word right out of my mouth. Yeah, the uh, the record is "I'm Your Baby Tonight." That was a big single off that record too. Uh, number six, we're getting into uh, like we're just starting to get into the uh, the the rock kind of takeover of the nineties. Uh, this is kind of the, the pre grunge band. They're not grunge at all. They're more of like a, uh, a bluesy rock band that would, they were pretty big at this time. And then like would move into like the mid nineties do pretty well. How long have they been around at this point? This was, uh, pretty much their first record. They would have, they would have just gotten big now. The lead singer Black ended Crows? up. Yes, the Black Crows is correct. Oh man! Wow, that was a good pull. Shake your money maker by the Black Crows. Number five is a really big dance music album by a big dance music group. Um, <laughs> this, uh, this, I don't know what there was like a bunch of different clones of this that you will know exactly if you probably start naming the big pop names of like dance music people in 1991 cnc music factory yes ellie gonna make you sweat by cnc music factory nice 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 i mean i was like if i just start listing off uh all the artists on like dance mix 91 or 92 i'm sure i'd get it but john 
Uh, I'll just give you this opportunity for number four, the other big rap pop artist of 1991. Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice to the extreme. That's the name of his record. I don't even know if I knew that. Like, oh my God. Just a walking Red Bull commercial. Mr. Uh, Rob Van Winkle. Oh my God. They, every time, they're just the greatest names. You, the rap the hip hop stars are always Clarence or Rob Van Winkle. Perfect. Rob Van Winkle was my neighbor growing up. Coincidentally, if you can believe that there was another Rob Van Winkle in this world, he existed in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, number three is a very was a very big trio of women, excellent harmonizers. Everything was like a perfect harmonized song. TLC. No, little early for TLC. Yeah, these are yeah. white women. Their parents are all famous musicians as well from the sixties. It's on the tip of my tongue, but oh. I can't. I'm not going to get it. No, because I well Wilson Phillips. That is correct, the, sir. All right, with their self-titled yeah. record, Wilson Phillips. I could like. The, I think I can picture a video or something. From who's the time. Phillips in Wilson Phillips? Oh, oh, there's Carney Wilson and. Is it China Phillips? Is that her name? China Phillips, I'm pretty and sure. Were her parents also like the famous 60s musicians as well? Yeah, they were. Okay, Mamas wait. The Papas. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, the, yeah, that's right. I was trying to think. I just looked that up. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, John Phillips. Interestingly, uh, the Wikipedia article for Wilson Phillips says not to be confused with Wilson Pickett. Wow. What? That makes absolutely no sense. Maybe a lot of people trying to remember uh, the uh, soul singer, get him mixed up, or looking like, what was his name? Wilson Phillips? No, no, no. Wilson Pickett. Wow. Check the, check the Wilson Pickett Wikipedia to see if it says not to be confused with Wilson Phillips. <laughs> it does. I can't believe people that many people made that mistake that they had to put that on Wikipedia. Number two is an artist that I absolutely can't stand. Uh, he was in a really big band in the early 80s with a uh, trio out of England with a really famous drummer. Now he's gone solo. He's been around since the early 80s. He has one name. Sting. Sting. Sting with his album, The Soul Cages. No idea. Mm. Can't stand Sting hate his music yeah don't know it really i mean know it know it in that it like know it uh, like the ambient knowing of the songs but yeah yeah i'm sure yeah. i couldn't name one song off of this and that brings us to number one number one is uh this is a debut for this person uh again an incredibly huge uh female solo artist 1991, she would have carried all the way through the 90s into the 2000s too. Probably one of the biggest or the biggest Christmas record of the 90s she had as well. That's not this Mariah record. Carey. Mariah Carey with her debut, Mariah Carey. Christmas was the magic word. Yeah, I know. When I looked at this too, this is March. She put this record out a year before in 1990 and it's still riding strong. It had six That's singles wild, off man. it. She's had a she's had a long career, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Ninety, like that's thirty years right there, man. Mm -hmm. She's wow. done well. She's one of those people as well who like never drinks, never smokes. Like is just like bodies a temple. Like always working on your voice. Like is never just very smart, career minded person. Realizes she has the gift that she has. Recently, too, I think last year on CBC, they were talking about her Christmas record and her, like, the big single off that, All I Want for Christmas is You, and then making the point that that was the last big Christmas song ever written, and they made a really good case for it. That was from 1994, oh, wow. and they're like, think of any other giant Christmas song that's been written. There hasn't been. She's the person who kind of wrote the last Christmas song. Obviously, people have Showcase written Christmas showdown. songs. Yeah. Showcase Showdown, Merry Christmas, I Fucked Your Snowman is 
the only Christmas song that I think I've ever like truly adored. <laughs> Do you guys ever listen to that thing that WPBR? Um, what's his name? John. I think his name's John Solomon at Princeton, like Princeton Radio. And every year he does a he does a twenty five hour Christmas marathon, and and it's 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 great listening because you you hear a man slowly go insane from <laughs> sleep deprivation and the music that he's playing. But he's just it's it's also really fun and lovable. Wow, I'll check that out. That sounds really good actually, because yeah. I can't stand Christmas music, and every yeah. year I just want to put on the Ramones or like Pansy Division, Homo Christmas or something. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good too. I like that one a lot. That was always fun to play it. You know, all of a sudden, like try to like slip that in, like at a Christmas party with adults in the '90s, see if they noticed it. But anyways, thanks so much for coming on, guys. That was an amazing chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me too. Um, I hope you guys. Uh, yeah, I, I hope you come back soon. Uh, it was a, it was really amazing to talk to you both about this. I was really looking forward to this as well. I know that you guys are both fans of uh, these genres and you know the bands we talked about. So I was really happy to uh, get to the opportunity to discuss it with you. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was super fun. Take care, guys. <laughs>